Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Vietnam War has gone down as one of the most controversial and resounding defeats in U.S. history. But the truth is, it wasn't just the U.S. who fought in the war. By their side were Australia and New Zealand, among many other loyal nations. So how was the war received in these countries? Was it as controversial as in the United States? And what about the soldiers themselves? What was the outcome of the battles they fought? What are the legacies of their war in their home countries today? I'm your host, James Patton Rogers. This is Warfare, and to prize open this often forgotten aspect of the Vietnam War, I've chosen to focus on the Australian experience, and specifically Australia's bloodiest and most significant battle, the Battle of Long Tan. To find out more, I travelled to Sydney, Australia, to meet up with one of the nation's most well-known military historians, David W. Cameron. So join us as we sit down in the iconic Grace Hotel in downtown Sydney and discuss Australia's Vietnam War. Hi Dave. Hi James. Welcome back to Warfare. So great to meet you in yeah. person. Well, thank you. Here in Sydney. How are you doing? You well? Good, good. How was your trip? You know what? It was long. Yep. But it's worth it. It's a beautiful country. And actually, we should tell our listeners where we are. Yeah. We're in the Grace Hotel, which is a, a defining feature of Sydney that played host to the US Army's small ship section during the Second World War. A section which had over 3,000 Australian men and boys as part of it who helped provide vital supplies to forces fighting the Japanese in the Pacific. And were you telling me earlier that MacArthur was based yeah, in this building? Yeah, I think for a couple of months. Was he went up to Brisbane. But yeah, you stayed in this hotel for, I'm not sure how long, but I'm just wondering if there's a MacArthur room. We've got to look for the MacArthur room after. Yeah. We're going to hunt down that <laughs> yeah. plaque. Well, today we're going to talk about a very, very different war. We're yeah. going to talk about the Vietnam War. And we've covered the Vietnam War from many different perspectives. We've looked at the end of French colonial rule, some of the major failures for the French, and of course that long American campaign and all of the politics and the pain that's embroiled in that. But one thing we haven't looked at is the Australian Vietnam War. And to put that into a little bit of context, the rest of the world may forget this, but 60,000 Australians, including ground troops, Air Force and Navy personnel, served in Vietnam, with 523 killed and almost 2,400 wounded. So, tell us, Dave, what on earth got Australia embroiled in Vietnam? Simply the domino theory. Okay. Basically, after um, Korea came the great fear of the um, communists taking over, coming down. Australia was always worried about the whole of what Australia policy racist thing we had going. Oh, we were going to get swamped. That was very prevalent in the 50s and the 60s. Yeah. Thank God that's gone now. But they were worried that first Korea, and then when the communists started activating Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam, and people could see the communist infiltration and China helping the Vietnamese, and it's like, oh, okay, Korea's going to go. Oh, now Vietnam's going to go. Oh, next thing, Indonesia's going to go. And Australia's sitting there waiting to be taken. So Australia 
literally the politics in Australia was thinking, if this domino theory, yep. this domino effect is true, then Australia is one of those dominoes. Ultimately. Right. I Sounds see. crazy now, but at the time, communists under the bed, and remember the 50s, the McCarthy's, yeah. uh, all that stuff was pronounced in Australia as well. We had the same type of stuff going on. And it was a great fear of communism. So what did Australia do to try and combat this? So your prime minister at the time was Robert Menzies, right? And he wholly believed in this communist red scare. He did. You also have to remember, we, in the 50s and 60s, we were all in Malaya fighting with the Brits. And we were, had Australian regiments, first, second, and the third Australian war regiments in Borneo fighting the Indonesians in a, in a covert war. Now, Australia implemented conscription in 1964, and that was um, out of fear of going to war with Indonesia. Those same guys that were conscripted ended up going to Vietnam a year later. So quickly switched from a fear of going to war with Indonesia in 1964 to active war with Vietnam a year later. Australia was involved with troops on the ground in Vietnam. And how wide was that conscription? Oh, it was straight wide. It was basically the same as America. They had a little machine and the balls went round and you pick out a number and your number's the 23rd of November. You'll be called up and examined and if you pass a medical, you're off to Vietnam or you're off to training somewhere in Australia. The Australia at the time had full employment. At your level, at your experience, you could pick any job you wanted at your level. So if you had a university degree, you know, we had abundance of jobs going. No one wanted to join the army. So by 1964, the Australian Army, I think it's like 50 regular army, and the Australian regular army had only been in existence post-World War II, they had a, probably 50,000 all up. And with the fear of war in Indonesia and being actively involved, having troops rotating out of Borneo, fighting the Indonesians covertly, we had to boost up our Australian force. And so they instigated a conscription in 1964, again, for Indonesia. Those troops ended up in, in a hot war in Vietnam. So to what extent, and, and this might be kind of overplaying British influence at this time, but did Britain have an influence on this? Was this something that was kind of political pressure on Australia? You need to bring up some troops because we need your support. Malaya was... In Malaya. And then this leads to... And then, to the Amer- yeah, the, we were tacking towards the US post-World War II. Okay. Because with the ANZUS Treaty, which Australia, New Zealand and America, was all about Southeast Asia and it was a compact of self-defence, yeah. that type of thing. So we, by then we were tacking with the US, moving away from Britain as right. a, as a mother country looking after Australian interests. Australia, in a sense, got burnt World War II with Churchill and what happened with Australian troops, like Churchill tried to stop Australian troops coming to defend Australia from Japanese, wanting to keep them in the Middle East or send them to Burma. With that, Australia sort of lost its sense of security with England. And then, of course, with American involvement in World War II and a lot of American troops, Australian foreign policy started tacking towards the American line of war. The Americans are in the Pacific they're in Southeast Asia. Obvious reasons the Brits were fighting in Burma, but they weren't, obviously weren't coming down to fight in New Guinea. They had to, you know, you're fighting the Germans in, in Europe and, and everywhere else. So we were attacking, with, by the 1950s, 60s, we were basically attacking with the US. And while we're very strongly committed to the Commonwealth, we're seeing our foreign diplomacy or anything else attacking with the US. And, see, Menz, and Menzies was a firm Commonwealth believer, but even he realised our defence is very reliant on the US now, not the, US, not, not, not the UK. He saw who the new superpower saw, was. Yep, exactly. I, I suppose that would be the main question that anyone would ask. You know, whereas the UK doesn't get embroiled in Vietnam, Australia does. But it's, it's for that reason. It's seen as not only being in their backyard, but also in their national security interests to be a really key ally of the United States. But yeah, that's exactly why. And that's another reason why we got involved is because we're part of the Andes Treaty, yeah. which had to be involved. It was like, and, and New Zealand was also involved in Vietnam War too, not just Australia. So it was a form of commitment. Okay, we'll sign the ANZUS Treaty. America's now got self-embroiled in Vietnam. 
we're part of the treaty. We better do the same thing because if we were completely at threat, America, well, you didn't help us in Vietnam, so why should we help you? So we're going to be seen to be actively involved. And Australia became actively involved, and the, traditionally the media release was that, oh, the, the South Vietnamese government asked Australia to become involved in Vietnam. We asked, and the Americans asked us to ask the, not the South Vietnamese government, can you ask us to come involved? So communiques went out saying, can you please ask us to come involved so we can become involved in the war? So it wasn't the South Vietnamese asking us to come involved, it was us, us asking the South to send us an official communique to invite us or to ask us Oh, so this, this isn't pressure. This, oh, no, is, no, this no. is a clear tactical, political decision to make sure that Australia's fate is intertwined. And I suspect, I, can't, I don't know about New Zealand, but I suspect the same thing happened there as well. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. The Australians committed troops, Air Force, Navy. I think, from recollection, the New Zealanders committed artillery. Right. I, I'm not sure how many troops, men on the ground they had, but they certainly, as we go along town, played a major part in battle long term. Yeah, New Zealand artillery. So how heavily was Australia initially involved in the war? Was it purely train, training? Was it similar to the United States? In the yeah, fact, we had, we had train training. Mission creep? We had Australian training teams go in 1962 and they were involved. And then 65, we had an ongoing training team which expanded, mission creep expanded. 65, we went in. One thing to uh, Menzies and then later, the later Prime Minister, Held Holt, demanded that Australia have its own province. It was not going to be where we go into Vietnam War and we get siphoned off to different American units and operate under American commanders. We are going to be involved, but we're going to have our own province and we're going to look after that province. And the Americans continually tried to draw Australian troops into other provinces and there was an agreement that that could happen, but the Australian commanders, their credit and intelligence, like, no, Foktoy province is ours. We work after Foktoy province but we're not going to get embroiled in Laos and Cambodia and all this type of stuff which the Americans did. And we weren't going to be siphoned off into American battles raging all around those provinces. So that was key to, I think, Australia's success in Vietnam. And Australian success in Vietnam was pretty much a success story when you look at it. Well, within, within 12 months, the province was basically was running pretty smoothly, the Freeway 15 from Vong Tau to Saigon, up until the Australians got in there. It was no-go area. You couldn't move on it. It was basically an ambush city. Within 12 months, the Freeway... And the other freeway, I think freeway, I can't remember the name, there's freeway 15 and another freeway, both of those were open for duration of the war. You see, that couldn't have been an easy task. There must have been some heavy fighting involved in that. We know, of course, that the Vietnamese were incredibly fierce fighters and and, and would not hold back in any way, shape or form. The Americans learnt that firsthand. Are there any key battles that stand out for you during this period that epitomise Australia's fortitude and its success? There's two key ones. Long Tan, which most people... A lot of people know about because of the movie. There's also one called ba- um, Coal and Balmoral, which in many senses, and that's a book I'm going to write about hopefully next year, is just as important as Long Tan. It went for a month okay. and had more significant but Long Tan is probably the one that people know about. So Long Tan has gone down in history as a major Australian victory yes. and incredibly costly fighting, but it didn't feel like that at the time, did it? No, at the time, that night, the battle ended around about 7pm, started at 3pm, or just after 3pm. Around about midnight, Harry Smith, who was the D Company commander, he'd lost 17 men. He had 105 riflemen, he lost 17 of them killed, and he lost about 23 seriously wounded. And he was worried, this is going to be a, this is a complete disaster. The next day when they went out to the battlefield, they found about 250 dead, 
over the next few months, when they were doing patrolling, they found roughly another 300 dead from the battle that had they'd been evacuated and had died so the Vietnamese just couldn't take them. Mm-hmm. So you got roughly 500 dead there. American troops later on captured diaries of the senior commanders of the Viet Cong who said they lost 800 dead and 1,000 wounded wow. out of a force of 2,500. This must have been a major coup for the Americans. They must have been quite happy that there had been uh, a victory in Vietnam. The next day when the Australian commanders, Jackson and Townsend, Townsend was the regimental commander and Jackson was the brigadier in charge of the Australian task force, they were like, oh God, this is a disaster. The next day when they went out there, Swift's credit, who was the company commander, the troops really don't want to go back out there. I mean, they'd spent four hours in torrential rain and shell and it was a hellhole. There were like 2,000, 2,500 Vietnamese wow. surrounding, almost surrounding 105 Australians and three New Zealanders for, for three hours. There was like one hour introduction each side. But, so for three hours, they were basically being surrounded. And the only thing that was really stopped them was the resupply of ammunition, because each man only took out 60 rounds. Because they were just going out patrol. They didn't really expect to find anything. Okay, so that's an interesting point. So this was an impromptu battle. This wasn't something they were geared up, ready no. for, with plans in place, no, no. with long supply chains. This was something that just happened. The men were pissed off because Australian detainers had arrived there. And I think it was the first time that Australian troops went into a battlefield area. Right. And D Company had been out patrol. They'd come back, and they were expecting to spend the day swinging some beers and, and they were looking forward to sitting back and unwinding while A Company and others were out patrolling around. There'd been a mortar attack the night before. B Company had gone out to f- try and find out, because they, like, they used to call it shoot and scoop. The D45 VC battalion, which operated in the area, would fire something, you know, cause a ruckus and piss off. Yeah. And they all went out, they thought, oh, you know, it's just going to be nothing. So it was B Company that went out. And B Company didn't find much, found some base plates. And Harry Smith said, oh, well, we're going to have to send out D Company just to further the reconnaissance. So they all got called out and everyone said, you're going out. So they were, they were all pissed they're, they're off. They're annoyed as it is. They're annoyed yeah. and they're thinking, oh, it's, just, it's just another one of those wastes of time. I want to go to the concert. And this is the monotony of war. It like, is. You're constantly sent out on these endless patrols until something happens. Until something happens. And so they meet up with B Company on the western edge of the plantation and they have a chat and they're saying, oh, so, yeah, it's just bloody waste of time, typical, you know, like, the soldiers, they'll do what they've got yeah, to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're all like, oh, they can hear the music in the background because you know, that's what, what, about five kilometres away, I think, what, something four or five kilometres, so they can still hear the music. And they talk about, trips talk about, why are we on this patrol? Because they can hear the music blaring and all these guys are back there swinging beers and having like a barbecue, doing what they're doing. So they end up going to the plantation and um, the guys that become, oh, yeah, we're going back to the barbecue, you know, you poor suckers, you're going to be spending the, the day, possibly the night out in this place, there's nothing to do here, but you know, and so they walk into the plantation, not expecting, they might expect to find some more weapons, cash and that type of thing. Weren't expecting. Mind you, they should have, because Keep, who was the intelligence officer, was aware that the radio communications of the North Vietnam, or the Viet Cong regular army, they had a radio, a couple of radios. And the intelligence officer, he got to know the way they and realised, he could tell which radios these, by the... Yeah, of course. Of the, yeah. He saw, he plotted the regiment, or the radio of the regiment, heading towards Long Tan. Right. And he kept warning, look, this is the regiment. This is the, this is the intelligence coming through. We've got to watch out. NVA here. heading towards. So we've got the NVA regiment, which is three battalions, and we've got a Viet Cong D45 battalion out here. Jackson, who was in charge, didn't even tell the regimental commander of 6th Royal Australian Regiment, who's sending his troops out, we've got intelligence that there might be another 2,000 men heading your way. By the way, we've also got, as we know, the local D45 battalion, there's about 500 men and women. Jackson just 
fluffed off. Darn signals. What do they know? Bloody hell. So that day they went out. Even Harry Smith wasn't even warned by this intelligence. And he wasn't warned because his own commander didn't know that there was evidence that there was a 2,000 North Vietnamese regulars heading towards Longtan. Jeez, and so they only took 60 rounds. So they took 60 rounds because they thought, you know, you're not expecting anything. So they headed out. Then there was a confrontation with Sharp's 11 platoon. They had two platoons up front. Sharp's 11 platoon was going across the track and hit some guys in greens. The D45 battalion guys normally wear black, black pajamas. Yeah. There's a firefight. Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser-known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's a firefight. And one of the Vietnamese guys gets killed, but everyone's going, God, these guys are wearing greens, they're not wearing blacks, and they've got AK-47s. The D-45 battalion used bolt-action weapons, World War II Japanese village, regular army, they use Chinese AK-47s. Sharp, who's the platoon commander, chases them, picks up the AK-47, and goes, shit, it's Chinese. He radios back going, these guys are in greens, and they're carrying AK-47s. Something's going on here. These just aren't your normal Viet Cong. So he says, can I follow? And Smith says, yeah, follow them. So um, they go out into extended line on frontage of about 250 metres and 10 platoon is to their north. They hear the firing and they hear the communications because the radars could hear each other. They hear sharps turn towns that either we hit five or six guys. They still think these guys are bolted so it's just going to be another... The other platoon leaders are really envious going, oh, sharps had an action. Because um, yeah. you only get about two or three of those in a tour. Yeah, of He's going to get his military cross and be over Christmas on... We're not going to have anything. And so they were already envious that... Well, little did they know. Yeah, yeah, be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you wish for. So 11 companies on the left running towards trying to catch up to the Viet Cong. Yeah. Not expecting there to be more Viet Cong, about 2,000, about 500 metres away. Right. Tenth platoon is on the left going, oh, you lucky bastards. And Dave Sabin, who's with the company, is just behind the rear. He's going, oh, you lucky bastard. And it was me. Again, not thinking, think that's it. We'll spend the night here, then we'll go back. At least um, Sharps had some action. No one's been home. Except for Vietnamese guy that was killed. He was later found. So uh, they were moving out, and all of a sudden they hit a clearing, 11 platoon. 
an extended order, no depth, hit a clearing in the, this little um, long tan rubber trees, yeah. and they just hit this clearing and it's a wall of bush. And they're just starting to cross this, there's one bit of wire going across, so they're all sort of like one section's going through, covering the other two sections. Fire breaks out, intense fire breaks out, and they go, what the? And it's, it's obscene the amount of fire that's come through, and they realise Sharpness and Raid, everyone can hear it. Sharpness go, I think we've hit another platoon, maybe a company, and then um, they will hit the ground. Most of the fire is coming from the left, so it's sixth section with Corporal Robbins. His section's basically decimated. Within 10 minutes, all these men, the two are dead. So there's two sections left. Five section, remember, it was on the right. They're ordered to try and come around to help six section. They get pinned down. So there's this wall of fire coming from the Vietnamese. Now, the Vietnamese didn't expect them either. There's two arguments going that the Vietnamese were setting up to attack Nui Dat, the base. Well, I was going to say, was there going to be an ambush coming, a surprise attack? My assessment is that they were, and I'm hardly alone, and this is not my idea, but I agree with the assessment people made that it was an ambush set up for the next day. Right. They came in during the afternoon, setting up for an ambush to draw out an Australian company, hopefully two, because, you know, They've got 2,500 men, so they, they want to take out more than a company. They yeah. want to give the Australians a bloody nose. But 2,500 men aren't going to do much damage to Nui Dat, which has got two Australian regiments, artillery, it's got choppers, it's got American Air Force on oh, it's reinforced. Yeah. yeah. So it, and it's covering wire. So yeah. they're not going to do much damage to Nui Dat with 2,500 men. But they'll do a lot of damage taking out one or two companies, which would make us, they're thinking, well, that'll make Australia think twice about tangling with us. Because you just lost a company or two companies. My theory is that they were setting up that day, that afternoon, to draw out. They're probably going to do another fire so, mission. So they weren't especially heavily defended either. No, they were probably just starting to dig in. Right. And meanwhile, the Viet Cong of the D four five five, typical Viet Cong, which traditionally like back with black pajamas, they were south and they were moving into the plantation because they were probably going to dig into the south. So there's a fluid situation where you have got D companies collided with the 275 regiment, this is roughly 2,000 men, and they're spaced over some areas. So it's not like 11 platoon has hit the whole 2,000. There's probably a company there at least, yeah. and it's all in depth because the Viet Cong are in depth. So, but they're coming forward as their firefight's breaking out, and Lieutenant General Chan, who's commanding the Vietnamese, he's located at a hilltop just to the northwest, and he's directing. And all through that, a lot of the guys said the thing that scared them most, scared, they could hear bugles. And their heart was like, their grandfathers in Gallipoli, the Turks using bugles to sound it. These guys, all through the attack and in order, all they had were bugles. And a bugle would announce a charge, and another bugle, and they would fall back, and then they'd hear another bugle over there, and that, another charge. So all, it's like all a pitched pitch, battle. It's almost, it's almost like Fork Swift. It was yeah. like Zulu. Yeah, right. So it would be a massive wave attack. They would fall back, and then another one would come from another area, and they would attack. If they'd all gone together, God knows what would have happened, even with the artillery, because the wall of artillery that was brought down saved them. Because they talked about these Vietnamese guys and, and women, they were just walked into this wall of shrapnel and expl- heavy explosives, and a few would come out of it, and then they would drop, and then the bugle would sound. Some of them, you know, who were in the wall would disappear, but the guys who were in the front stayed where they were because they didn't want to walk back into the wall of explosives, and they couldn't get any further because the guys were on a reverse slope. So they had a bit of a reverse slope to hide behind. Not high, but no, it's like Waterloo. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like Wellington, the, the, yeah. the, the ridge line. But they can see what's going on. It's a very shallow slope. It's not dramatic by any sense. It might be one or two meters, but it's enough to cover the wounded from yeah. direct fire. So you're getting this build-up of Viet Cong, who somehow regulars who survived the war of artillery, starting to mess up between the Australian infantry line perimeter and the wall of artillery. Right. 
Oh, okay. So, but the Australians don't want to fire because this was by this time 11 survivors, 11 platoon, and 10 platoon CH company. And there's a lot going on, but to keep it short, they're all basically there's about 80 men left unwounded that are on this reverse slope. And there's a war of artillery by the New Zealand artillery battery stopping the Vietnamese from just overwhelming them. And but slowly but surely, there's a build up of Vietnamese that are getting through that war of artillery and they're all collecting no man's land. Really? And it's the Australian infantrymen who are keeping them at bay with their fire. But the Australians will not fire at them until they're really up close because they've got guys they know are out there. Yeah. They're concerned these might, some of these guys crawling towards them might be Could probably be 11 guys. platoon yeah. or 12 platoon. And the trouble is it's pelting down rain. They're both wearing greens. So in the dark, they all look the same. Yeah. So the guys just can't fire. And all the guys kept, well, I, I was lucky enough to interview about 15. They must have been hugging the ground, Dave. I mean, if you've got no kind of reinforcement there, you've not dug your own trenches, you're hugging that ground, yep. and you can't see hardly anything you can't. until they're up and they're coming at you. And it's pelting rain, and then it's a, there's a thunderstorm. So you've got the artillery going off here, and then you've got the thunderstorm going on over there. So they're running out, they're out, Harry Smith is saying, if you don't drop the ammunition, yeah. don't bother. There's a lot of fluffing going with the RAF, and anyway, especially two... Helicopter guys say, look, stuff the stuff. Guys in charge of the helicopters. So I've got to ride, well, I've got to ring Canberra to get permission to fly in this bad weather because we want to get shot down. And, and the Americans, the, the Americans, they're saying, oh, yeah, we'll do it, which makes us look bad, like the Australian. And let's not get to Yemen. So the Yemen, the Australian, Yemen going, we'll go, we'll go. Yeah, of and course, the, yeah. And we're always each other, oh, well, I've got to get permission from Canberra. Like, like ring Canberra's for 12, 12 o'clock at night. He's going to be on the end of the phone. Uh, so, you know, these two airmen who'd flown out the entertainers, they say, stuff this. Laid out choppers with, with, with ammunition, and we'll fly it out. And Raw, his guy who's in charge, he has to back down because A, the Americans are saying they'll do it. And then his um, tenants are going, basically, they're not saying to him, stuff you, sir, but they're going, we'll do it, we'll do it, let us do it, we'll do it. And then so Raw has to back So the guys who have flown in the entertainers for the night are now flying out ammunition. Do they get awarded medals of bravery for this? Yeah. They recognise? Yeah, yeah, not as much as they should be. There was a review of some of the awards about three or four years ago, some of them were upgraded. Yeah. And there was a guy that, Sergeant Jack Kirby, everyone I met, out of the 15 guys I interviewed, every one of them said, Jack Kirby should have got the Victoria Cross. Now, you don't go by what the men said, but the men were there and he was, and the Victoria Cross is not just for bravers, you know, you've got to actually change your battle to get the Victoria Cross. It's yeah. not just being brave. He was instrumental in, when the, uh, these choppers fly out there and it's a thunderstorm, they stop, because the choppers are flying out, now they've got to stop the artillery because they don't want to hit helicopters flying out. So the wall of artillery, which is stopping like, to, by now the Viet Cong are involved so you, you had 2,000 regular soldiers attacking wave after wave now to the south you've got the Viet Cong attacking to the south hitting them they're flying in at the most intense moment of it's a thunderstorm and the Viet Cong's got RPGs so, but the thing is the guys thought some of the artillery stops and that's the only thing that's really saving them and of course these guys they, they don't want to fire blindly because they might hit one of their own men who are missing and I think there's roughly maybe 10 men missing at this point still missing could be eight, something around that figure. So they're, they're all going, don't shoot until you, you know it's not one of ours. And so for a critical five minutes, there's no war of artillery. The helicopters are trying to find them in this thunderstorm, pelting down rain. And the only reason they find them is because they fire red smoke. And they're flying so low that they can see the red smoke. They're flying at treetop level to get wow. down. And then they tip the chopper over slightly. And the guys in the choppers just push the ammunition boxes down. And they get down, the hell out of there. And they get the hell out of there. But... That saves the battle. Yeah, no, the, the, the ammunition is not in bandoliers or in magazines. They have to, it's just individual oh. bullets. They've got to load each of the mag, magazine. So it's not just they've got like 
like here's your magazine and put it in your M16 and oh, you've got to like you've got to physically. And that's where your training comes in, right? Yeah, and the guys kept saying well, the training was everything. They just clicked in. Yeah. So they didn't have time to be scared. Your training just kicked in. So choppers fly out. The wall artillery starts again just as another mess comes through. And everyone said Jack Kirby should have got the VC. He was, he was loading the... He, he's being fired. He's running out into no man's land because he sees one of his men. He runs out amongst the uh, Viet Cong, grabs... I think it was two guys. Drags them in. And he's running around directing the battle. Nothing like Harry Swift was doing his job too. He was a brilliant officer. You know, he does full credit. But everyone talked about the way that Kirby was running around in the open, ex- fully exposed, loading guys' magazines and giving them... And, and he, that, he was everywhere and he was getting the word. He, he was phenomenal. He unfortunately got killed a couple of months. He survived the battle and had to die by friendly fire a few months later. A New Zealand shell were doing field operations against the Viet Cong landed short and he was killed. So the helicopters have come in, they're starting to kind of work with the ammunition and starting to fight yep. back. How does the battle end? It ends, it could be a movie, well it is a movie, danger close. The cavalry arrive at the last possible time, the Viet Cong D455 battalion is starting to come around the rear. Harry Smith sees him and he yells at the guy saying, look behind you. And they're going, what? Can't see anything. Look behind you. And, and, he, and then all of a sudden they realise, oh my God, the Viet Cong D45, they don't know who they are, but there's a major force coming up around the south. And coming they're up. about to be routed. They're about to be routed. They're about to be cut off. They're not surrounded yet, but this is going to be when they're completely cut off. And all of a sudden, armoured personnel cars arrived. They were ordered to come in with A Company. They arrived just as the Viet Cong 455 Battalion are about to cut off their only line of escape and they plough through them with their 50 calibre machine guns and they've got their headlights booming. They've got these major searchlights. They're on and one of them gets taken out by an RPG and the guy gets killed. But they just cut through them and uh, the Vietnamese then realised this 455 pack up and leave and they take everybody they could with them. They're wounded and they're dead and then the APCs arrive and word must have got out because then the regulars in front and north and south, they start to withdraw because the APCs are charging into them. They realise, OK, the APCs arrived and they don't know who else is behind them. So then the battle sort of unfolds and within five minutes, the artillery stopped because they're stopping because the APCs are going forward. The APCs soon come back and form a harbour position. And as a line, one of the guys says, uh, it was silent, even the rain and the thunder had stopped. And he said, all I could hear was the sound of the click, click, click. If the APC motor's cooling down, wow. it's just quiet. Dave, that is incredible. And, you know, in history now, that's gone down as a major victory. But the cost of that war is incredible for a country like Australia. So I just want to know, back home, obviously in the United States, there are protests in the streets, an incredibly unpopular war. Was it the same in Australia? Were there the same sort it of protests? It was a microcosm of the US. Right. We had guys burning their draft cards. We had... People, um, police trying to search them, find them, because they were burning their draft cards. We had protests. We started off being like all the way with LBJ. I think that was about 1966, 67, might have been 68. All, all the way with LBJ. That quickly turned. Not because, because Wong Tan was two, two years before that. But body bags start coming home. And then there's the thing about massacres at like Numai and all that type of what happened in Vietnam. And you see those images of napalm and villages. Like, the media, we got the same media the US were getting. And I, even as a kid, I remember, I would have been about five or six years, I still remember watching TV and at the end of the broadcast they would announce who was killed and wounded that day in Vietnam. Every day on the radio and TV in Australia. At the end and of the news. And that just got longer and, and longer. longer. And I, that's one thing I always remember is like who, who died that day or was wounded that day in Vietnam. And um, 
the media had the same impact in Australia as it had in the US. And by the time we pulled out in 72, when Gough Whitlam, the Labor government came in, and they just they went to the election on a no-war campaign and got us out of war. Now, we're here this week in Sydney as a, a major defence deal. We're talking billions of dollars has been signed between the US, the UK, and Australia for these nuclear-powered submarines. The radio here appears to keep calling them nuclear submarines. That kind of sends a bit of a different message to what they might be. But this is all about the concerns about China, of course. And so the alliance is strong. Let's be clear about that. But how did the Vietnam War affect Australia-US relations in that post-war period during the 70s? For about 72 to the early 80s, it wasn't good. Relations between Australia and America were pretty bad. Early 80s, they picked up again. Vietnam, it was around about the Reagan era, the the relationship, and Bob Hawke was a Labour, became very pro-US, and very pro-Margaret Thatcher, very pro... So the relationship with the US and the UK was being rebuilt in the 80s. Why was there this kind of breakdown in relations? Obviously, due to the fact that the war itself was overall a failure by any measurement. But did the Australian people feel betrayed, misled? I think they did, to a large degree, yeah. And it wasn't just they didn't trust the US, they didn't trust any government, they didn't trust the Australian government, just like, just a large degree, so people don't trust it today. I'm not saying they should, but they shouldn't. But Bob Hawke, who I'm not, it's irrelevant what my views on Bob Hawke are, but he took a pretty pro-US stance, rightly or wrongly, I would argue rightly, because we're, we're a mid, mid-range power, we're certainly not a big player. I would argue we punch above our weight, but we, we do need alliances with the UK and US, with India, with Japan, and... China is being pretty aggressive. And that's where we stand today, sadly, Dave. Well, it is. thank you so much for your time for meeting me here in this busy but beautiful Art Deco lobby with so much history. And, um, you know, Dave, I look forward to having you on the Warfare podcast again soon. I look forward to being here. Thank you very much, James. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2 on Instagram at James Rogers History and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.